Matt Ruff Pottercast in three, two, one. Thanks for joining me for this edition of the Pottercast. I'm joined by author Matt Ruff. Matt, thanks so much for being on the Pottercast. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. Well, I learned about you from, you know, if, if people were watching this in the back, you have the 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 book cover for Bad Monkeys. And that's how I first came to you. When you meet people who first learned about you, is there one book in particular that typically say, oh, I read this and that's how I found you? Uh, no. I mean, one of the odd things about my career is that um, – I, I've been I've been fortunate to basically basically write whatever I want, and and I found publishers have been willing to let me follow my head wherever it goes, and all my books are kind of different. So, no, I have I I have fans for each of the novels, you know. So there are people going back to Fool on the Hill, my very first published book, and um, it's you know it's a joy for me because I get to always do different things. But it it is it always been at least until recently was kind of a nightmare for my publicist because there really is no atypical Matt Ruff novel. They're <laughs> they're all over the map in terms of subject matter, and some people like them all. Some people have one favorite and don't understand why I didn't do their favorite novel over and over again. And you know so, but yeah, right. it's it's really it's more a matter of numbers. The later books, I mean, Bad Monkeys was, you know, my best-selling book before Lovecraft Country. So there are probably more people who know me from that than from say, Set This House in Order. So um, yeah, yeah. If but, people, if people look for you in, in, in a Barnes and Noble, or, you know, if people still go to those places to buy books or for a bookstore, sure. fantasy sci-fi, does that fit with it? I mean, can you put what you write in a genre? No, they're they're all different genres as well. I mean, most of them do have some sort of fantastical element to them. So, um, you 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 will find probably the majority of them in somewhere in the sci-fi fantasy section. But then you know you can, you know, you could file. I mean, Lovecraft Country ends up in horror. You know, if they <laughs> right. if they have um, you know black black fiction section, it might end up there. Um, you know, media tie-ins and then, you know, set this house in order sometimes ends up in just straight literary fiction. Um, so yeah, they're, they're really all over the map and it just depends on the computer and then the guy actually doing the filing where they decide to put me. So. Are you a bit of an anomaly in, in the authors you meet? Because you're right. A lot of, a lot of folks, you know, get involved in one kind of genre and that's what they're known for mystery thriller or, you know, um, historical fiction, that type of thing. You are pretty much all over the map. Yeah, no, that is very unusual. And it's, if I were a more practical person, I would probably not have done it that way. I mean, if you, if you just want to, you know, really make a name for yourself and, and make, make money, which is really not hard, not easy to do as a writer, then yes, finding, one type of story or one genre that you you excel at and and making that your brand is probably the way to go but um i mean i'm i'm one of those weird people i decided that this was what i wanted to do for a living when i was 5 and i basically taught myself how to tell stories so by the time i i was in the presence of people who were willing to give me advice about how to work my career it was already too late i just kind of figured out now nah, i'm just going to write what i want and it will somehow magically work out and Oddly enough, it did. It, so, um, but yes, this is this is not the way most people do it. 
Well, you've written a lot and I've read some things you've written about your parents, uh, your mom and dad. What, what I mean, what did they say when you said at five, hey, I'm going to be I'm going to I'm going to write stories. They were very supportive. Um, and my mother in particular, she was. Um, my grandfather on my, my mother's side, Albert Landbauer, was a missionary from Missouri who went down to southern Brazil. Um, the jungle down there, there was a there was a colony of German and Russian woodworkers Um who were nominally Lutheran, but really they were unchurched. And so grandpa was sent down to gather them back to the Lutheran church before the Baptists got hold of them. And um, <laughs> he, he, he got, I get some of my storytelling chops from him. He wrote a memoir, Roughing It for Christ in the Wilds of Brazil, which talks about, you know, what his life was like, where he would ride a circuit around different areas through the jungle. And originally he rode horses, but the terrain was so terrible, they kept dying on him. So then he switched to mules, which were, sturdier and slower and so he would often be riding you know 18 20 hours at a clip sometimes in total darkness with rain pouring down and he couldn't get any of his girlfriends from missouri to come join him in paradise so he ended up marrying a gal from down there a, a russian immigrant my, my grandmother uh, helena and they had eight kids together and mom was one of them so mom was born in the jungle and uh you know grew up in they actually eventually moved to argentina and that's where she grew up and uh she came to the United States at, at age 23 and eventually met and married my father. And so, you know, growing up in South America at that time, my mother was a very smart woman. She spoke like just fluently and get along in a half dozen others. But you know, women were not encouraged to seek higher education mm. in, at, at that time. And I think she always felt, uh, you know, like other people thought she was stupid because she didn't have a college degree. And I mean, if she had had the opportunity to, to go to college, I'm sure she would have done wonders. But one of the things she just never quite figured out what she wanted to do in life. So she always felt like she, you know, she, she'd never found her niche. And she would often say this to me that if, if this was, you know, if I knew what I wanted to do, she wanted to give me the best chance to succeed. So she, you know, was always really supportive of my ambition. She um, very early on bought me an IBM Selectric typewriter, which was the, the Cadillac of typewriters before typewriters <laughs> went the way of the dinosaur. I and remember those one, days. <laughs> yeah. And she got one of my, one of my aunts was visiting from South America and, and mom enlisted her to teach me how to touch type. So, um, you know, it was one of those things. It was like, she was not like one of these mothers who like pushes you to, to, to see it. It was more like, I'm going to mm. give you the tools to follow your dream. And then what you do with that is ultimately going to be up to you. And, and uh, yeah, so I, I got a lot of support from her and dad as well. You know, he was, I was closer to my mother growing up. So I, I remember her more, but dad was also very supportive and and helped in other ways. So um, yeah. So I, I was fortunate in that sense. And I know you've written, she comes from that. So that, that kind of missionary background, your dad was what, a pastor and a, a chaplain. Yeah. So, so there's a lot of religious background in your, in your family and growing up. Yeah. Um, well, our house was, yeah, our house was Ellis Island for all of the South American relatives coming up to the, to the United <laughs> States. So we, we were never alone, just the three of us. There was always somebody else with us and um, missionaries in particular are rather opinionated people. They like to argue just for argument's sake. So and this sort of fed into my interest as a novelist because I, I grew up around very opinionated people who saw the world very differently than I did. And mm. I, I learned early on that there was value in being able to understand people who just didn't see eye to eye to me. And that's one of the the commonalities of my novels is I do like writing stories from the point of view of 
people who are not like me, or I like taking characters from different backgrounds and forcing them to interact in, in situations where there are no easy answers. Like they're not going to, they don't agree and they're not going to agree mm -hmm. and they're not allowed to kill each other, but somehow they've <laughs> got to figure out a way to get along. And um, so that, you know, that is probably also feeds into my desire to try all these different genres and story types because it's fun to, to you know, put on a, a new set of goggles and a new, a new set of conventions and see what I can do with this. So, and, uh, you know, but again, my mother's stories growing up in the jungle, it's like I, I was getting these sort of crazy, fantastic stories about mm -hmm. life from early on. So that was always a part of storytelling too, a sort of magic realist way of looking at the world. Um, yeah. So that, that fed very much into this. Um, yeah, it sounds like a great way to grow up, especially, I mean, sometimes religious backgrounds can be very dogmatic, you know, and so you don't, you're not allowed to think different thoughts, but it sounds like you were kind of, I mean, I don't know, I would put words in your mouth. Were you no, encouraged no. to think differently and have discussions about that? Well, I mean, <laughs> I, I would say that on both sides, I mean, my both my mother and my father in their own ways were very conservative Christians. But, you know, I was I was growing up in New York City in the immediate mm. aftermath of the civil rights movement. So it's like, yeah, their home was home was a fairly conservative and contentious environment. Sometimes the other thing is my, my grandmother eventually came to live with us and uh, she by that time had converted to Mormonism. So. It would be this thing where oh boy. Yeah, the, yeah, the <laughs> relatives the relatives get off the plane, they come to our house, put the bags down, grab a Bible and head downstairs to try and bring grandma back to the true faith as if, you know, back to the light, huh? <laughs> good luck banging your head against that rock. So, um, yeah, I, I but but, you know, but then I would, you know, I would go to school and I, I had friends who were, you know, who were Jewish, who were Catholic, mm -hmm. who were atheist. I mean, so it. It was it was an interesting way to grow up. Yes, I come from this conservative background, and I'm comfortable with those conservative viewpoints because that's just family. I know how they talk, but at the same time, yeah, I I, I grew up in a very progressive, liberal outer environment, and it, that also kind of shaped me that that switching between the way things were at home and then the way things were in the mm -hmm. larger world. And um, yeah, so I'm sort of comfortable in in different environments for that reason. And again, that all fed into uh, my writing. Yeah, that's interesting because it. You mentioned earlier you, you like to get people from different backgrounds, different thoughts, and put them all together in a, in, a, in a novel and make them kind of interact with one another. That's it's kind of what you were doing. Worlds were colliding as you were growing up. Um, yeah. Do Do you find it's easier to do that in writing something that's fantastical sci science fiction? I mean, because you deal with a lot of race and religion and things like that interspersed throughout, uh, especially you know, um, you know, Lovecraft. Uh, county that that has a lot of the the race issues and stuff in there but you can kind of deal with those maybe in a fantastical setting and not bother people i, mean, I don't know i mean as far as the characters themselves i actually strive for a more psychological realism it's it's more that i i you know i i love having weird things happen in a story but I, I actually, when I'm as far as trying, you know, explaining how people see the world, I, I try as much as possible to ground that and make it feel like the way real people think, because that's mm. that's part of the fun for me is this understanding. Yes, I I wouldn't live my life that way. I wouldn't make that choice, but I understand why you do. And I mean, this is a thing that that people will often say when they encounter someone who does something that they 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 wouldn't. They will say, you know, oh, I don't understand why you would do that. I don't. And when you say that you're literally confessing your own ignorance, but mm. most people, it's like that, that implies that you are the one who has something to, to figure out. But most, of course, what most people mean by that is 
you're behaving in a way that annoys me. And, you know, that must mean either you're really stupid or you're a bad person or you're just crazy and just stop. And that's, you know, it's kind of the opposite of what you would expect to take away from that. So, um, but I, I actually like want to understand. It's like, I, I may not agree with you, but, you know, I'd like to know why you're doing that. And, you know, if you do that, occasionally you find out, oh, your way of looking at this actually helps me understand the world better. And, and I can learn from that too. So, um, yeah, but it's it's just sort of a thing. I, I kind of, I guess it was kind of a survival skill growing up on that in, in my, <laughs> among my relatives because it's like, yeah, we're we're gonna fight and um, right, you know, we still, you know, we're not gonna we we can't kill each other and we still tomorrow when we wake up we still have to find a way to live together and love one another and you know you do so. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Um, have you met any other uh, novelist authors who uh, felt like they wanted to be that since five years old? Um, I can't think of anyone offhand, but I'm sure. Yes, I'm sure there. Are, I mean, it 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 varies widely. Everybody's got their own story and process, but I think a lot of you know there are a lot of artists who certainly from a young yeah. age um, were intrigued by that. But then there are also some very good writers who didn't come to it until late in life. Like I'm I'm a big fan of William Gibson, and I think he he was probably in his 30s or even 40s before he really seriously started writing. So. Um, it's never too late if to discover that's what you want to do. Yeah, and so it, you've you've talked, and I was reading one of the, um, um, I think it was uh, an interesting moral education a, a article uh, you wrote on your blog, and then a, a speech you gave. Now, gosh, over a decade ago, right? At, yeah, it was uh, 2010, at, I think. So, yeah, at I know, Cornell or Calvin College, right? Calvin College. Yeah. I was invited there. They had the Festival of Faith and Writing, which is a really interesting. It's a really interesting uh, convention that they hold there every year, or at least they did. I don't know if that's still going on. So, were you surprised when you got in invited to that? Where had you known about it before? How did that invitation come about? I, you know, I no longer remember exactly how it happened, but it was. I think it was a a. It was probably bad monkeys because I I do talk about I I, I had I think I had mentioned. Um, my parents' religious background in mm. some of the publicity for that. And so they, I think they got wind of it from there. And it, it, it's like this is basically this festival. It's like, yes, they talk about writing and they talk about religion and religious faith, but it's it's open to everyone. You know, that it's you 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 don't have to be a believer, you don't have to be a member of a certain, you know, denomination or faith. It's it's basically anyone with who takes religion seriously and and you know i mean I, it, it, it's the kind of place where if if a satanist wanted to come and and mm -hmm. you know be polite and you, as long as you're not hexing the protestants while you're there i'm sure they'd be happy to have a satanist come and talk i don't know that that's ever actually happened the only person who wouldn't be welcome is someone who's just not interested in talking about religion at all yeah um, and i found it to be very welcoming and, and very interesting and um no i wasn't I, I guess i wasn't surprised to be invited i was just i was just you know happy to to learn that it existed and i was i was honored to be brought there and it, and they treated me very nicely i had a wonderful time so i think if i'm not mistaken in in that uh in that speech in that writing you mentioned and you talked about a little bit earlier that that you felt like your your mother was maybe always kind of looking for her true calling and not yeah. sure if she ever found it would you would you consider i mean deciding you want to be an author a novelist at five was was that a calling i mean do you look at it in those terms i mean you come from that kind of religious background where calling is a big deal right and I, then I mean, you have I, to I, name it that i mean i would i would you know i i think i probably described it that way in the past but more in a metaphorical sense like i don't believe you know i was divinely chosen to do this it was more like i i just I always wanted to do it. So, and, and the thing about 
developing that sort of passion at an early age, you're you're too naive to understand that. Um, you know, it's it's you just you just assume it's going to work out. You don't necessarily think of it as something that you have to strategize as. And I had enough success early on. Like I got published right out of college, and you know, I, I didn't become a bestseller by any means, but I I at that time I was okay with being poor. You know, I wasn't married. I, you know, mm. I didn't I, I never learned to drive, so I didn't have car payments. Um, <laughs> I was just I was able to get by long enough being a poor starving artist to reach the point where I was kind of like a, a middling, not starving artist. And then, you know, now at you know, very late in life, after you know, half a half a century as a writer, I had become an overnight success with Lovecraft <laughs> Country. So, um, yeah, no, it's just it's just one of those things. I I decided that was what I wanted to do, and I had enough of a, a drive to do what was necessary to to get myself to the place I needed to be for lucky things to happen. Mm-hmm. So, and I, I you know, there's a part of me that understands intellectually this is this is all happenstance and. There are any number of points in my career where if something had gone a little bit different, I would have been forced to give it up and get like, quote unquote, a real job. Um, and I'm, I still marvel that that didn't happen. But at the same time, at a certain point, when you manage to find a way to keep going, you just you kind of you kind of believes, yeah, I was meant to do this in some sense. And it's, you know, it's like a superstitious belief, but still it, it's the kind of superstitious right. belief that helps you keep going when things are tough. You so so you're five you or you you're at home you're five six whatever you get the typewriter you start kind of figuring it out yourself. Did you find like mentors or guides along the way, or is this truly something you just kind of slowly evolved into figuring out how to write a novel? It was really it was really for the most part just messing around and and you know telling stories and figuring out what I liked and what I didn't. And I mean I had feedback. I would. Early on, I discovered that, you know, if I if I wrote stories about my classmates and I got to read them out loud at school, they, you know, especially if they were funny, they liked them. And it was a way of, you know, performing and and getting getting a sense of what worked and what didn't. And I, and I had good teachers along the way who gave me good criticism about stuff. Like uh, there's a, a teacher named James Camprath, who was I think he was my seventh and eighth grade teacher um, at the small uh, school I attended. And then. Um, when I got to high school, one of my professors was Frank McCourt, who was not, he's the guy who eventually went on to write Angel's Ashes. But mm-hmm. at that time, he was just a, a, you know, he was a guy who'd been a, a high school teacher forever. And um, he told, you know, he, you, that's so funny because of course he, he told a lot of the stories that ended up in Angel's Ashes or stories he, he first told to us in class. And he was a, he was a wonderful raconteur. He was a great guy to have as a teacher just because he could really tell a story and you could really learn by example from listening to him. So um, so I had good teachers along the way, but mentors in the sense of, of, I think that most people think of that word, not so much. It was more, I was really just very self-taught and I had, and that was good and bad. You know, I mm-hmm. it, it leads to a certain level of originality and I was never trapped by, like there was this belief when I was growing up, I think that, the, like the route, particularly in science fiction and fantasy, that you start with short stories and then work your way up to novels. And mm-hmm. um, I was always drawn to long form fiction. Those are my, my my sense now is those are very different skill sets and very different types of storytelling. And even when I tried to write short, I would I would tend to start writing serials or write longer, you know, like weave it into longer, like interlinked short stories or, you know, soap opera format or something like that. I always wanted to keep going once I had a, a thing that I enjoyed. Um, 
and yeah, and a lot of it was just, you know, I'd start writing something and then I get bored with it and set it aside and I'd start something else. And eventually I figured out how to finish long projects. And, um, and then I still had a lot of more learning to do just growing up and learning how to, you know, once you actually become published and you, you learn how to deal professionally as a published author, deal with media, deal with, you know, uh, the, the, the editors and, and publicists, that's another level of education there too. But, um, so I had good advice from certain people along the way, but I never really, I, I don't really consider myself, I can't think specifically of a mentor, mentor mm -hmm. who says somebody who took me by the hand and said, this is the way you should do it. Um, so I just, you know, I had, I had good advice from good people at certain points in my life. So have you refined or, or changed that uh, process of how you get your ideas and start writing and write a novel. And is it similar? I mean, you know, I've, I've read some of Stephen Pressfield stuff, you know, about a very specific, Hey, I write from this time to this time and then I put it down and then I move on the next day. And do you have a process like that? And how has that evolved over the, over the years? I mean, the, the, the general process has always been the same. I, I have a lot of different ideas that, that are sort of half baked story ideas bouncing around in my head and, mm -hmm. you know, like, yeah, I'd like to do something about this and I'd like to do something about this. And, um, it used to be, you know, I would be, I, I, I do a lot of thinking. It, this is still true. I do a lot of thinking by just when I walk, um, and, Basically, what will happen is, you know, it's often it'll be one or two different story ideas will collide. And I realize if I fit these two together, it gets to someplace really interesting that starts to look like an actual story. And I will tend to become obsessed with a particular story idea and be thinking more and more about it, whether or not it makes any practical sense from a career standpoint. And I found that, yes, that I focus on that obsessive idea and then I, I you know, I think more about it and I figure out where the story is going to end. And I have a pretty good sense when I, you know, by the time I start writing of like what the first third or so of the book is going to look like. And then in between that ending and that sort of definite opening, there's this foggier area where, you know, I know sort of what's going to happen there. There's going to be this scene and this scene. And it's like little peaks, mountain peaks poking up above the fog. And then, so I start writing and as I go along, the fog starts to recede. And, you know, as I go in, I fill in more of the blanks. And then I finally reach this glorious day when the book's not all written yet, but I know everything that is going to happen and that it, it's basically going to work on the page more or less the way I thought it would work in my head. And that process has never really changed much. It's just that as I've gotten older, I've gotten a better sense of when something is working and, and, you know, I, I, I basically reach that sense of confidence that I can pull this off earlier and mm. I I'm less likely to go down blind alleys because I can usually tell when, when an idea is not quite right and I've got to think about it some more. So I've just, I've gotten a little bit more judicious about what, what to spend my time on and, and how to, you know, at, make the writing progress more quickly. But, um, but the, the trade-off of that, of course, is when you're younger, you try a lot of stuff that doesn't work, but occasionally you hit on really interesting experiments. And there, there's a there's sort of a, a goofy energy that comes from when you're young and you don't totally know what you're doing yet, that as you get older, your work gets more polished, but it also loses some of that, that wackiness. And this is something that I think like fans huh. of my, particularly my first novel or two, will often, you know not like as much about my later fiction because to me it's more polished and more mature but that also means it's in some ways a little more conservative i guess in terms of 
not taking a mm. total kitchen sink approach and not just, you know, putting an idea in the page because it's kind of cool. It's like, I want to make sure it really fits there and really works. But if I'm going to do that, whereas when I was 20, I would just be like, eh, this is a cool bit of business. Let me throw it in anyway. Even if it doesn't work perfectly, that's fine. So, you know, it basically comes down to taste. So some people just yeah. really love that, that youthful, let's try anything look and other people much prefer, you know, okay, you know what you're doing and you know that this joke isn't funny, so you're not going to make it. <laughs> Yeah. Was there a specific novel that that kind of changed or was it just kind of a gradual progression as you as you matured in the craft? I mean, to me, the the, the real cutoff is my third novel, Set This House in Order. That is um, that is a book about it's it's a book about two people who both have multiple personality disorder. Um, and one of them, the character, Andy Gage, who's like the, the, the main narrator of the story, um, as He's basically, he, he's a very well aware, self-aware multiple who has basically built a, an imaginary house in his head. You could sort of think of it as like a virtual mm -hmm. reality environment where his different people, his different souls all live and can see and talk to one another and basically cooperate rather than constantly fighting for control of this body that they share. And this is a this is an actual strategy that, you know, real life multiples sometimes adopt in order to sort of manage the condition, um, which I and I I got the inspiration of this because I, I my wife was friends with someone who who actually was multiple and had done this. He built his own mm -hmm. house in his head. And when I heard about that, I was like, huh. I had never heard about mm -hmm. that strategy for dealing with MPD before. So I thought that would be an interesting thing. And then. Um, this guy, Michael B., who inspired this, he he at one time was dating a woman who was also multiple but hadn't figured it out yet. And when Michael figured it out and tried to tell her, um, she didn't want to know. And some of her more self-aware alters decided they didn't like Michael and decided to sabotage the relationship. And when oh, I heard wow. about that, I'm like, wow, this, <laughs> this sounds like a really interesting idea for a novel. I mean, it sounds like a, a really tough situation to live through, but... Um, so I decided to to write a book with that kind of as the premise, and so that's the the story. And the 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 narrator who tells the story is a specific individual, a specific soul who's specifically been created for the job of dealing with the outside world and you know running running the body full time basically. And and but he's still got some unresolved issues hidden in the basement of the house that he's got to deal with that eventually come up. And and in the course of he meets this woman Penny Driver who's an undiagnosed multiple. All she knows is that she's frequently loses this time and finds herself in weird situations that she can't explain. And um, some of her alters basically try to enlist Andrew in, in helping her build a house of her own. And that ends up destabilizing him and makes him deal with, you know, the stuff he's not been dealing with. So that book I spent a long time on and I, you know, I, there I really had to resist the desire to sort of, you know, go totally, totally wacky, goofy. It worked much better told in a more restrained matter of fact style because of the outrageousness of the basic concept. And so I think writing that, it's also my longest book by a long shot. So writing that really raised my, my game in terms of how I wrote and what I felt I was capable of accomplishing. So that's the book I would really cite as mm. the sort of the dividing line between the, my more youthful work and my, my more fully mature work. Um, and what was funny, of course, is I, I really expected after all the work I did with the book that that was going to be my breakthrough novel. Um, and it, it, 
it is not, you know, it's it's a favorite among a lot of readers, but it is just never, it, and it did very well critically, but uh, commercially it has never been particularly successful. I mean, it's it's been in print since it came out. It still sells copies, but it's it's not anywhere near my most popular novel. And I followed that up with Bad Monkeys, which I thought was going to be, it was just this little idea for a gem of a sort of Philip K. Dick psychological thriller. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I just want to, you know, I want to write this sort of lighter novel, get it off my chest, and then I'll go back and do another big novel. And of course, it's Bad Monkeys that becomes my my first breakthrough book that was very commercially successful and got a lot of attention from people in Hollywood. So basically that was that was the other part of going it's like you cannot you don't try to predict what's going to be successful just what's going to hit yeah do what you want to do and and enjoy it and do your best work and and that's yeah served me well going forward so well bad monkeys was my introduction to you and i read it years ago and i loved it and then i i didn't read any more and then i was like gosh i got i should go back and read that again so i I grabbed it again and read it again and i think you said at one point if you get into it you could probably read it in an hour and a half or something which i did it was just it's it's great read oh yeah um and you know now i'm moving on i've got i've got two more uh i'm 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 partially through Lovecraft uh, country. And then I've got uh, the Mirage as well. But after Bad Monkeys, you said you got some some Hollywood um, uh, attention. And I know that it's been it's I think it's still maybe in production. I'm not sure where it's at. I know um, uh, somebody bought it. Um, it wh- where is Bad Monkeys? Is it going to get made oh, yeah. into a movie? I know Margot Robbie was attached to it at one point. Originally was it was it was optioned by a guy named Mac Battaglia for development as a television series, and that you know never never quite came together, mm. and so the option lapsed. And then Margot Robbie's you know somebody gave her a copy. I still don't know who, but God bless you, whoever you were. Um, <laughs> and Margot optioned it for her her production company and Universal. I think I think Universal are the guys who are who are putting up the money behind that. And uh, yeah, they still have the option. They're still working on it, and. Um, that's the other thing you learn about Hollywood that production schedules are generally quite slow. Stuff can be in development for, you know, years or even you know yeah. decades. And then suddenly one day everything comes together and they start making it. So, you know, but I, you know, the option you still get, you, you get a check every so often when they renew the option and that's perfectly fine. And I am happy to wait as long as I need to, to have Margot do it. If, as long as she's interested. Um, and the other the other side to that was um, I I had what was probably one of the most important unsuccessful business meetings of my life as a <laughs> as a result of Bad Monkeys where I I was invited by some folks connected with TV production to pitch them ideas for original TV series and I ended up pitching them three ideas The Mirage Lovecraft Country and Eighty Eight Names and. Um, Basically, these were these were ideas that like they encouraged me to, you know, push the envelope and say, you know, do do edgy stuff, whatever, you know, no, no holds barred. And I understood that, you know, their idea of edgy was probably very different from mine, but (laughs) I decided to proceed as if that was not the case. And I I can't try to come up with ideas for TV shows that I would love to see. Mm. If if they were the kind of shows that could actually get made, so I, the Mirage was a a story about um, it's a nine eleven novel set in a world in which the the U S and the Middle East have traded places. So the the nine eleven attacks, it's it's Christian fundamentalists from mm. you know the the Independent Republic of Texas flying planes into downtown Baghdad um, and the the Defense Ministry in in Riyadh, um, and then. 
you know, it's the United Arab States who declare a war on terror and invade the U.S. And um, the story is, you know, picks up eight years later, and it's basically about a trio of Arab homeland security agents in Baghdad trying to solve this mystery about these these captured terrorists who are claiming that the world they're living in is a mirage, and that the real world in the real world, U.S. is the last superpower, and the Arab <laughs> states are just this collection of third world countries who just make trouble. And so it's a, it's a, it, it often gets compared to Philip K. Dick's The Man in the High Castle, but I, I mm. actually compare it more to um, Robert Harris's Fatherland in that it, it's, you know, because, because Dick's book still puts the Americans at the center of the story. It's like, what if, you know, what if, what would, what would losing World War II have done to America? And Harris's novel Fatherland is like, what would winning World War II have done to Germany? Which to me is mm. a much more interesting question. So in in the Mirage, it's like the 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 main characters are Arab Muslims, the good guys and the bad guys. And the Americans are kind of this sort of supporting cast who occasionally show up and, and cause trouble. But the real villains are, you know, Saddam Hussein, who in this reality is a gangster, and um Osama bin Laden, who in this reality is a war hero who is, you know, secretly working behind the scenes to bring down the Republic. So, mm. um, so to me, that was just a much more interesting way to go about it. But you can understand pitching that in 2007 <laughs> while the, the war in Iraq is still going on. They were like, still well, going. you know, we, uh, we said edgy, but we, we didn't quite mean this much, you know, maybe Not that edgy. Need another, I think the, the phrase I remember is this, this needs another layer of metaphor. <laughs> so they were, I mean, they were very polite to me. And then the same thing with Lovecraft Country, which was basically the X-Files, but instead of Mulder and Scully, white FBI agents in the 1990s, it's set in 1950 Chicago. And it's based on a family who run a travel, a black family who run a travel agency and publish a fictional version of the green book called the Safe Negro Travel Guide. And this Black cast getting involved in a series of supernatural adventures while also dealing with the uh, the real horrors of life in the Jim Crow era. And again, that was probably just a little too out there in in you know that in 2007. And I also may not have been the best pitch person for that. But... <laughs> and then 88 Names is a is a virtual reality story. It's a story set almost entirely in virtual reality. Um, and so. Anyway, they they you know very politely pass on all these ideas, and then I started turning them into novels because I'd fallen in love with the story ideas. And I'm like, okay, well, I I totally understand you don't want to do this on television, but I think these are all good ideas. Let me try turning them into books. And so I started with the Mirage because it was the most timely and also um, probably of the ideas the easiest to reimagine as a, a novel. Um, and that's a book I'm still immensely proud of. Um, it's also was it was a commercial failure just because, again, by the time I wrote it, I think people were tired of hearing mm -hmm. about 9-11 and the war in Iraq. Um, but then Lovecraft Country was the follow up to that. And um, there I, I I hit the timing just right. It, it came out in 2016. And, you know, I right away I was started getting a lot of interest. And um, of course, the big the big thing was Jordan Peele got a copy of it and he really liked it and um, he optioned it. And this was right as get out was uh, being released and breaking. So basically Jordan could decide he could do whatever he wanted next. And I just happened to be, uh, you know, I, I got to share in that um, with Lovecraft country. So, and, uh, and yeah. they did, uh, they did what one season of that Lovecraft country. 
Yeah, it was, it was, I was, we were all very surprised when HBO decided not to renew that. Um, it was, you know, Misha Green, the showrunner, who I thought did a great job, but, and she had already had plenty of plans for season two and beyond, but um, for whatever reason, HBO decided not to renew it. And um, a lot of people on the internet are still mad about that, but yeah. I just felt really lucky to have gotten the one season and it did give me the opportunity to, you know, um, I mean, Lovecraft Country then became a bestseller. I mean, that's the nice thing about an HBO series. It's like the perfect advertising campaign for your novel. And because of that, I mean, I, meanwhile, you know, I had come up with this idea. I wanted to write more books in this for, for, for the first time. I actually wanted to write a sequel or sequels to something I had written because I, I had more to say with the characters and I had more places I wanted to take the story. And my contract with HBO, I have, I still have the literary rights, to the novel, I can write sequels to the original book, as long as I don't take anything that was original to the TV show, which is fine, because mm -hmm. Misha had her own very different ideas about where she wanted to take the series. And for a while there, it looked like we would both be able to go forward. I thought that would be really cool to have these two similar, but in, in some ways, very different interpretations of the same basic concept. And she was going to mm -hmm. take hers in one direction, mine going in another direction, proceeding simultaneously. And that is something that I don't think has ever really happened before, just because of the way intellectual property typically works. But this was this case where you're going to get to see that, you know, this idea is actually rich enough to support two radically different interpretations. And I thought that would be wonderful. And again, unfortunately, the series was not renewed. So, um, I, you know, I, I won't get to see what Misha was going to do. And I'm still very disappointed about that, but I at least get yeah. to go back and, and continue um, telling the, the, a, a fuller version of the story. So um, how does that work? That could, could somebody else pick that up or does HBO still have the, the rights to it for a while or. HBO has got HBO has the the TV and movie rights basically in perpetuity. They mm. own that now. So no, that, and that is, that is again, a, like, what makes this an impractical choice on my part, because, um, you know, Destroyer of Worlds, because it, it it has the same characters, because it builds on the same situation, it, it really doesn't have any option value, because unless unless HBO wanted to revive the series and, and continue based on my version of the story, which I don't think would work. Um, mm. The only the only way somebody else could option is that they took it and then, you know, completely changed the the basic concept they couldn't use any of the same character names they couldn't use the same basic structure they'd have to they'd have to take specific ideas from within this new novel and somehow repurpose them for a totally different story and that's just not likely to happen so um basically no it's it's unfortunate that um it's just going to have to be my hmm. version of the story in in print and my best hope is that you know, if I if I if I tell this full saga that I want to tell, it's like this this book is the first of what I hope will be at least two and probably three more books. Um, okay. And if I if I write all of that, if I have a complete story, then maybe in you know five or ten years down the road, if HBO wants to reboot the series or if they want to sell the rights to somebody else and let them reboot it, that's a possibility. But um, as it is, yeah. Uh, that that'll that will just you know have to cross my fingers that something like that happens but other other than that no i i really can't sell it to somebody else yeah once you once you sold that um you know bad monkeys once you sold lovecraft country did did they engage you on the stories i mean it, i mean i don't think a script's been written yet probably for bad monkeys but did they engage you on that did you get a say in some of those some of those stories do they want to hear your thoughts on that or is it kind of just their deal and 
they run with it. it. And it really depends on on the specific. I mean, in the case of of Lovecraft Country, I was called a consulting producer, and what that yeah. basically, you know, what that basically meant was that if they wanted my input on something, I was available. And you know, I did send Misha a bunch of notes, basically like you know. Like here's here's all the family trees if you care you know here's the backstories of oh, all wow. the characters that I came up with and here here's a here's a list of notes about why I made certain decisions about the way magic works in the book and 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 so on and you know take what you need you know ignore the rest and um and you know she appreciated that and she did you know ask me a couple of follow up questions but in general I think she just had her own ideas about what she wanted to do and I was you know. I had told my version of the story and I was smart enough not to try and insert myself in the TV process because frankly, I'm not qualified. I don't know. That's a different medium and a different, you know, a different dialect. So I didn't necessarily have a lot to contribute anyway. And I just, Misha had her own ideas and her own vision. And that was totally cool with me. Um, in the case of Bad Monkeys, you know, again, I, I haven't had a whole lot of involvement in the development so far, but um who knows that may change. And, you know, as we get closer to, you know, if, if, and when we get closer to actually making the the film, they may want to bring me in. If they do, I'm, I'm certainly available to talk to them, but it really depends on who gets involved and like who the director would be. They, some directors really want your input. Some don't. Right. And, um, so did you, did you enjoy the, the, the limited, uh, input you you got with lovecraft country did you want more i mean I, I i'm assuming you probably got to visit the set a few times or things like that visiting the set yeah i went twice and that was a that was a, an amazing thing um the 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 first time was uh in the pilot episode there's a block party scene takes place at night and uh that was a two-night shoot in actually in chicago like the pilot was shot in chicago they got a lot of exterior footage and then they for the rest of the series, they moved to Georgia and they, it, it's fascinating. Like when you see the inside of um, the safe Negro travel guide office, that was an actual building in, in Southwest Chicago uh, for the, in the pilot. And then they recreated that and the apartment mm -hmm. above it down to the last bolt in a studio in Georgia. And it's just, it, it, you can't tell the difference <laughs> looking at it. Um, but yeah, that shoot was amazing. I had not been up all night since, you know, my 20s, I guess. But, you know, they basically they start filming. They've got from six, six in the evening till six in the morning. They get to shut down this two block area to traffic. And and the police are very strict about this. Like at 601, that street's got to be back open again and cars have got to be going through it. But so you have this 12 hour, this 12 hour window in which you get as much footage and coverage as you can. And um, I, you know. I didn't have any duties. I just got to sit there and watch it all unfold. And I'm standing there looking at what must have been millions of dollars in, you know, the, they dressed the street up to look like the 1950s. They had all these old cars. And then of course you've got extras and just hundreds of people all working in this very choreographed ballet to get as much of the, the filming done as they can. And I'm in the middle of this, like, Sorcerer's <laughs> Apprentice thinking, my gosh, all this from this weird story I made up in my little room alone talking to myself. So it was a wild experience. And but again, kind of reiterating that I this is not my milieu. And, yeah. and you know, it's fun to be a part of it, but there's there's only so much I can advise them on. So yeah. Other right, than to say, right. gosh, this is really cool, guys. So I, I want to circle back. I, I read one thing that you had mentioned that was very interesting to me. Um how how um because your your second book, Sewer Gas and Electric, was a, a bit about this, but Ayn Rand and and Atlas Shrugged. Like how 
like most people, I read that like when I was in college too, you know, and or read most of it and then put it down and then read it <laughs> part of it again. And I, I actually got a little bored with it about halfway through, to be quite honest. And I was like, come on, let's come to a conclusion here. I'm kind of tired of these characters. Well, well, how did that influence your writing? What did you think about that? Well, basically, this was this was a book that I, you know, I, I it, they, they, it's a different book. It looks different now, but all the time I was growing up, it was this fat white completely white cover, you know, and um, so you'd see this fat white spine in the literature section and all of her books were, had that same basic color scheme. And I'd pick it up and it, you know, it'd be like, oh, this amazing story about the philosophy of objectivism. And, you know, there'd be a little card inside it, a little ad that you could pull out and send away to learn more about objectivism. And I'd pick it up and I'd put it down. And it's like, hey, I should probably read this someday. I'm curious, what what's this about? And I waited. And then finally, one day in college, I started reading it. And most people with with Atlas Shrugged have one of two reactions: either they they think Ayn Rand is the greatest thing since sliced bread, or they hate her with the burning passion of a thousand suns. And <laughs> right. I didn't have either of those reactions. I was like, I, I you know this philosophy doesn't sound like my thing, but I'm fascinated by this book, and I'm really curious what. Like I, I, I was able to take it with a sense of good humor. I was used. I'm just, I'm just comfortable dealing with with belief systems that I don't share, and so I, I mm -hmm. didn't feel a need to demonize her. I was just sort of curious, like, who is this woman, and what possessed her to write this? And, <laughs> and so I, you know, I tried to answer that question. I started reading about her, and it was a good time to be curious because the 1980s, she was dead. She died in '82, and. Her closest uh, acolytes, Nathaniel and Barbara Brandon, who were part of her inner circle for, for decades, uh, wrote tell-all books about what that experience was like and how they came to break with her in the end. And so mm. it was full of all this juicy biographical detail. And she's her real name was Alice Rosenbaum. She was born in, I believe, St. Petersburg in the you know, turn of the century. Her parents were, you know, part of the Jewish bourgeoisie and they lost everything in the Russian Revolution. She was the only one in the family to get out of the country. Um, she went to live with relatives in Chicago and eventually made her way to Hollywood. Like she learned English by watching silent films and reading silent mm -hmm. film titles. And once she headed down, she she headed out west to California to seek her fortune as a screenwriter. And there's this story about how she was, you know, on the road to the studio to, to try and get work as like a clerk or something. And Cecil B. DeMille drove by and basically like she looked at him in some way and he said who are you and what are you doing here and she said i'm i am you know i'm ayn rand she'd taken this name so that if she got famous it you know it wouldn't get her parents in trouble back home mm -hmm. in russia because they were you know they were worried that the, the kgb or the gru was were, would would punish them so anyway she's like yes i'm ayn rand i've come here to seek my fortune and basically he hired her on the spot and so she was and she eventually became a a, a screenwriter and uh, then moved on to become a novelist and so she was this woman who escaped the you know the the soviet revolution and came to america and the american dream actually hmm. worked for her and this became the basis of her philosophy that you know anyone if i can make it here so can anyone else mm -hmm. and so I just, that continued to fascinate me. And like, there's still, there's just a lot of goofy stuff in the novel that, that you can make fun of. So basically I came up with the idea for this story that would among other things satirize Atlas Shrugged that would point out some of the absurdities of the philosophy, but I also wanted to play fair. I wanted to bring Rand into the story as a character. So there's a, you know, my, my protagonist, Joan Fine has a, a 
she gets possession of this lamp with a holographic recreation of Ayn Rand inside it. And so, and ordinarily Jones is lapsed Catholic political activist and Rand is the kind of person that Rand would never interact with in real life, but she's trapped in a lamp that, that Jones carrying around. So she doesn't really have a choice. So it, it gave me a chance to let Rand have her say. And um, at the same time, sort of explore her, her goofier aspects of her philosophy. And so that was, that to me was the right way to go about it. I didn't just want to demonize her, her mock her, or make fun of her. I wanted yeah. to explain the her origin story and and why this was. And so, so yeah, the original Atlas Shrugged, I haven't read it in many years now, but I, 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 I too like the earlier parts of the book because it's among other things, it's, it's this sort of, yeah, this capitalist apocalypse story where America's falling apart because we, we, we fail to recognize the value of, you know, the capitalist uh, worldview and, Apocalypses are always fun. Later on, when the society totally falls apart, and you get into these lengthy political speeches, and and you know it's right. time to bring in the capitalist utopia. Um, yeah, that that stuff's less interesting because there the 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 flatness of the characters becomes more apparent, and it's just like okay, yeah, yes, I I know this is what you want, but <laughs> I I like the other stuff better. So, but um, yeah, yeah, that, that, I, I still that was, think it's that was a, mine. I still think it's a it's a fascinating work, and, mm. and one thing I would love to see, like it it was filmed terribly, right. and I would love to see yeah. someone who is not a doctrinaire objectivist, but also not a a doctrinaire socialist, somebody who's able to appreciate it on its own terms, do it as sort of um, as a historical. You know, like like do do a version of it that basically captures the spirit of what she was trying to say and, and plays fair and plays honestly with it. Cause I think that would be as a as a historical drama, it would be really kind of interesting to see. I I just I can't imagine like you could probably buy the rights because the the you know, I, I you may have to wait until the current the current literary executor Leonard Peacock dies, but you could probably buy the rights to it, but it would be really hard, I think, in Hollywood to get get funding for it with people who wouldn't be tempted to just, you know, turn it into yet another let's bash Ayn Rand fest. Um, right. But it'd be I, one I or the other, right? That. Yeah, it would be either that or it would Basher be, you know, or this is the answer we've been looking for. <laughs> yeah, or a total sycophantic ridiculous. <laughs> right. Yeah. And neither of those would be interesting to me, but one that actually explored it as a as a historical piece, that would be really cool. So well, so that's so is that your next project? You're going to become a film producer and a screenwriter and buy the rights to that and no, I don't. Introduce I that don't, to the world. I don't think so. I mean, I have I have given some thought that it, it would be it would be interesting to try actually to explore screenwriting at some point. Like right mm -hmm. now, I want to. I do want to finish this story that I this this continuation of Lovecraft Country that I become that I've begun and and the nice thing I've discovered about sequels is that because you're not reinventing the wheel, because you're working with characters you already know very well, the writing proceeds more quickly. I mean, I've always mm. written, I've written at a, at a pretty deliberate pace. So it, it can take me as much as four years to finish a novel. And I, you know, I'm in my late fifties now, so I don't have that many years left, to, you know, before, while I still got all my, my faculties. So I would like to, to finish telling the story of Lovecraft Country the way I want to tell it and then work on other things. But I have thought about it would be nice to do screenwriting in part because I, you know, I would also like to own a house before I die. And I've got to say, <laughs> that's the other thing about the other thing about Hollywood is that the the money is a lot better uh, in terms of, uh, you know, so 
And of course, I live in Seattle, which is one of the most expensive real estate markets in the country. Right. So to, to buy my dream house here, I'm going to have to either win the lottery or, you know, get one really good movie sale. Um, so yeah. fingers crossed on that. But <laughs> So you didn't go property shopping down there in Georgia when you were uh, on the set because it's a lot less expensive in Georgia than it is in Seattle. Yeah, but it's a lot hotter down there too. That's I mean, true. I mean, Atlanta is a beautiful Atlanta is a beautiful city, and yeah. um, you know, I it's got a lot to recommend it. But the the you know the the weather is just not. I I my wife and I both like the Pacific Northwest. We moved here like I grew up in New York City, and yeah. and um, I I like having four seasons. I don't miss the the bad humidity of the East Coast, and I don't miss um, the 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 bitterly cold winters. So we here we have four seasons. If we want to see snow, we can hop on a bus and thirty miles east we got the Cascade Mountains. You know, um, but uh, Seattle proper it's just gray and rainy, a little chilly in winter, but you still have beautiful summers and. Um, but it's you yeah. know it's it's on an isthmus and way too much of the property is zoned single family housing so yeah it's really really expensive like a starter home here will run you a million dollars easy and um, wow. I've got a lot of bookshelves so I I need something a little bigger than a starter home so yeah you start getting into crazy money so what was know. the reason for that migration um to to the west coast from from New York was your wife from New York too. Um, she she grew up in Manalapa, New Jersey, and um, okay, she so East at, Coast. You know, we 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 met at Cornell, um, and then we we bumped into each other again in New York City. She worked as a she was a rare book dealer, and still still has a foot in that world. Um, she worked at the time for Argosy Bookstore, and then uh, later came, went to work for Bowman Rare Books. And um, when we got married, I had been living up in Portland, Maine, and uh, I came down to live with her in Philadelphia, which is where the Bowman's main store was, and. Mm. Uh, I don't know. Part of part of that was just when you after you've grown up in New York, no other big East Coast city can compare. Philadelphia, no no insult to people who live there, just didn't didn't really do it to me. So part of our agreement when we got married was that we would, you know, save up an escape fund and then move somewhere else. And I had hmm. been in Seattle briefly after college and really liked it. And so Lisa and I went out there and took a look, and she fell in love with it too. And we just decided, yeah, we want to move here. And you know, I can do my job anywhere. And um, she's got a really interesting skill set where she can she can kind of do her job anywhere, too. So, um, yeah, so we we just ended up coming yeah. out here and we've been here 23 years now. So. So it's home now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and again, unfortunately, we 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 have really good taste in cities, which means it's just really expensive. So we, we may be <laughs> renters for the rest of our lives if we if we want to stick around. But um, yeah. Yeah, well, maybe that big Hollywood money will come in. You never know. And, you know, it, there's always Powerball. <laughs> hey, we, Matt, thanks a lot for the time. I really appreciate it. I mean, I could, I'd love to chat. I could keep chatting with you, but I know we've gone almost uh, an hour now. If if people, if they're listening to this the first time, they've they, if they haven't read any of your books, do you have a recommendation of where they should start? Where you should start, my my website is buymattruff.com. That's B-Y-M-A-T-T-R-U-F-F.com, as in a byline. And um, and the reason it is that and not mattruff.com, by the way, is because I did not listen to my mother-in-law when she told me, <laughs> get that Matt Ruff URL before somebody else grabs it. And I was just like, oh, oh, you know, Rita, you know, who else is named Matt Ruff who's going to take that? Well, turns out there, there's at least one other guy. He's very nice, but he's not me. 
Um, he still gets, my, he still occasionally gets my emails, which is how I got to know him. But anyway, um, that's funny. Yeah. But go to the website and there is a, um, there's a link on the front page that will take you to, I have a sort of a quick and dirty guide to my backlist that will sort of give you a brief overview of the books and, and just pick whatever sounds interesting and start there and see what you think. And, um, you know, there's more detail about each book on its own individual page, but that would be my advice to, to start at. So. Yeah, no, that's great advice. By mattruff.com. Well, like I said, it's been a it's been a lot of fun chatting with you. Um, I loved Bad Monkeys. I'm really thoroughly enjoying Lovecraft uh, Country, and I'm excited that there's going to be sequels. Because I know I think I read maybe somewhere that you weren't a big fan of sequels, so I'm glad that it's it's turned around with uh, Lovecraft Country. Well, my, my general feeling is like it, sequels are great if you have something more to say um it's just the 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 thing where it's just the further adventures of those characters you liked i always feel kind of let down sometimes mm. I, I i like to have a little more thematic depth and so it was just that in this case i actually felt like i really did have more to say and and something more to do with it and so that it was kind of the exception to the rule with my other books i felt like i I'd, I'd i'd done the topic right the, in when the one book and i didn't need to go back but with lovecraft country even you know before i finished it was like yeah there's really more i would love to do with this so and again it's, because of the series i've I've had the opportunity yeah. that i've I, I can actually go and do that so yeah um, yeah well i'm excited to read i like i said i'm 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 part of the way through lovecraft country and it it's very enjoyable it's i'm, I'm really liking it i haven't i didn't see the series so I'll be interested maybe after I finish the book to check out the series on demand and see kind of how they tweaked it and how they changed a little bit. Because it sounds like you said Misha had her own ideas and took it maybe a little bit different direction. Oh, yeah. <coughs> it's um, well, for me, it's like looking into an alternate universe where I recognize a lot of stuff. But yeah, so it's it's been very interesting that way. But again, I'm. I, I thought that was fascinating and I'm, I've got my version of the story. So I'm perfectly happy to have her do something different. And it was, it was really neat to see what was going on and toward, particularly towards the end of the series, it starts to move away from um, the way the book ends. And this is one thing, other thing I should say, if you've only seen the TV show, um, you, you probably do want to read the Lovecraft country novel first, before you read the destroyer of worlds, destroyer of mm. worlds is, it's written as a standalone so that you, you it will tell you what you need to know about the characters, even if you haven't read Lovecraft Country. But um, because of the differences between the, the the book and the series, and particularly the way they ended, if you come, if you just watch the series and then try to read Destroyer of Worlds, you will you will be scratching your head a lot. So in that case, I would recommend going to the first book first. So. Um, yeah, and I, I want to say especially thank you to uh, to uh, your representative Rachel Alinsky at Harper Collins. She's fantastic. I I mean, oh, she's you know, awesome. I, yeah. I just kind of reached out because I read your book and loved it. And I was like, I don't know, this is going to go because I don't have, you know, a huge reach podcast or anything. And she was awesome, returned. And I'm really, really appreciative of you to to jump on and chat with me. Uh, I love getting to know interesting people and hearing their stories. And you're definitely an interesting, interesting person. And I, I thoroughly enjoy your books. Well, thank you. No, and I'm, I'm always happy to come chat with folks. So it's been a pleasure. Well, thanks a lot once again, and I can't wait for the, I hope uh, Margo gets some free time in her schedule so she can make <laughs> bad monkeys. Because she, when I found out that she was attached, I was like, she's the perfect Jane Charlotte. Like, that's, that's the, like, there's no other person that could play this now in my brain. So I hope that actually comes to fruition sooner than later. So do I. <laughs> so, yeah, fing <laughs> fingers crossed on that. Yeah, thanks a lot. And uh, we'll talk to you down the road, Matt. All right. Thanks a lot. Take it easy, man. Thanks, everyone, for listening to the Pottercast, and we'll see you next time.